Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 8, Collins. Chapter 42, Early Sunday Evening. It's just past 6pm and I'm sitting in the bar of the Westmoreland Hotel, nestled amongst the Cumbria Moorlands of northern England, just off the M6 motorway. I'm nursing a beer, waiting. It's already pitch black outside, and the temperature is rapidly dropping towards zero. Fortunately, there's a roaring log fire to provide some warmth and comfort. Within an hour of landing at Heathrow, I had received an anonymous text message. It provided directions to the hotel, then told me to check in and wait in the bar. Further instructions will then follow was the final sentence of the text. Although there's been no announcement from Atlanta regarding Regan yet, I'm treating it as just a matter of time. I made as large a cash withdrawal as I could from my bank account this morning and then threw away all my credit and debit cards. Sooner or later, the authorities are going to be looking for me and I want to make it as hard as possible for them to follow my trail. Ultimately, I will have to come forward and clear my name. However, I need to rescue Max, Phaser and Mina first. Their safety comes before everything else. The bar is quiet at this hour. Aside from the barman, all I have for company is the Christmas tree. To keep myself entertained, I look up the corridor towards the reception desk and watch the steady stream of guests checking in for the night. I see a couple of families heading off towards their Christmas holidays. I see businessmen and women, all smart suits and elegantly coiffed hairstyles, en route to last-minute sales meetings before the Christmas shutdown. One couple stands out, as they can barely keep their hands off each other, despite their business attire. He's in his late fifties, his hair entirely silver, She's quite a bit younger, perhaps in her early forties. He's wearing a wedding ring. She's not. As they check in, I watch as the clerk asks for a form of payment for the booking. I see the man reach to his back pocket, no doubt for his wallet and credit card. Mid-reach, though, he pauses, and his hand moves over to his smartphone instead. He waves his phone over the payment sensor. I have little doubt that he's just chosen to use Cube, trusting that its promised anonymity will avoid any awkward conversations back at home about items appearing on his credit card bill. If only he knew, I think to myself. If I had the inclination, I would be able to find his transaction on the global ledger and, with a little work, identify his name, company and home address. If I took a few photos right now, I'd have a nice little blackmail opportunity to threaten him with. A man enters the hotel and looks around. He's wearing a woolly hat, a thick winter jacket, climbing trousers and walking boots. He looks like he's been out hiking on the moors. He spots me and strides over. Mr Jenkins? he asks. I nod, slightly nervously. I'm suddenly fearful that he might be a policeman come to arrest and deport me back to America. Can I see some ID to confirm that? he asks. 
I scrabble for my wallet and pull out my driver's photo licence. He takes it, examines it, and returns it to me. Right, if you come this way, he gestures, pointing to the exit to the car park. Do I need to bring anything? I ask. The man points at my laptop bag. Just that, he answers. I get up and we head out of the hotel. The night is cold and still. A near full moon hangs over the moor, casting silver shadows onto the hills all around us. Which one is your car? the man asks. I point at the small Ford that I had rented just six hours earlier. We'll take yours, if you don't mind, the man says. As we get to the car, he stops. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to search you, he says. Check you're not carrying anything unnecessary. I spread my arms wide and stand with my legs apart. The man gives me a thorough pat-down. He searches through my laptop bag as well. He finds my cell phone in one of my pockets. I'm going to borrow this for a couple of hours, the man says. Don't worry, you'll get it back. He takes the cell phone from me and puts it into his coat pocket. Now, let's go, he says. Get back on the M6 and head north. We set off and join the northbound carriageway of the M6. The road is quiet at this time of evening. There are only a few other vehicles on the road, mostly trucks. We drive for about an hour, in silence. We cross over the border into Scotland, and the M6 becomes the rather more clumsily named A74 brackets M. We pass the exit for Moffat. Then the man suddenly speaks. Get ready to turn off, he says. Turn off? I ask, confused. But the next junction isn't for miles. Get ready to turn off the motorway, the man repeats. In five, four, three, two, one, now. I slow the car and pull onto the hard shoulder. We coast along for about a hundred metres. Stop now, the man orders. I pull up beside a large double metal gate. A substantial padlock and thick chain make sure that the gate remains shut. There's another road on the other side of the gate, a minor road leading to who knows where. There are red circular no-entry signs on either side of the gate. Underneath each sign is another. A text sign with the text, Unauthorised entry will result in prosecution, written in bold red letters, just in case anyone misunderstands the no-entry sign. Get out, orders the man. Climb over the gate. My associates will take you the rest of the way. I will take your car back to the hotel. I get out. As I do so, a pair of headlights turn on. There's a Range Rover waiting on the other side. I clamber over the gate. One of the back doors of the Range Rover opens, and another man gets out. Good evening, Mr Jenkins, he says. He's dressed smartly in a suit and tie and knee-length coat. He points towards the back of the car. Please get into the rover, he says. There's a slight hint of a Scottish burr to his accent. I get in. Another person is in the car, in the driver's seat. A woman. She is dressed all in black and has long red hair tied up in a ponytail. She appears to be quite short although it's hard to tell exactly as she's sitting down. 
I'd estimate she's no more than five foot. The woman nods to me, but says nothing. The man goes round to the far side of the car and gets into the other rear seat. Let's go, he says to the woman. She starts the engine and the car moves smoothly away from the gate. I'm guessing that this is all being done to ensure that no one is tailing us. Anyone following me in another car would have to drive for miles to get to the next junction of the motorway in order to turn off. We drive along twisty narrow roads for about 20 minutes. We reach the edge of a woody area and drive up a muddy track, stopping in a clearing. The man switches the light on in the back of the Range Rover and turns to me. Right, he says. Show me what you found. I pull out my laptop and walk him through the code. It's not easy to demonstrate in the cramped confines of the car, but I do my best. The man watches intently, but says nothing. Once I finish, he gets out of the car without saying anything. I peer through the side window and see him standing about five metres from the car. He's pulled out a phone and is talking to someone. He talks for about a minute and then returns to the car. Well done, Mr Jenkins, he says. There's just a short way further to drive. He pulls something out of his coat pocket. He passes it to me. It's a hood. I'm afraid, though, that you're going to have to put this on for the rest of the journey, he says. I see no point in arguing. I put the hood over my head. It completely blanks my vision. I can see nothing. I hear the Range Rover's engine start up again, and we begin to move. How long we drive for, I'm not sure, but it's at least another half hour. There are plenty of twists and turns. We seem to be driving on nothing but minor roads. A couple of times we seem to go up sharp inclines, sharp enough that the Range Rover has to change down several gears. Eventually, the car makes a sharp right turn, and I hear a change in the road surface. We're no longer on tarmac. It sounds like gravel. The car drives on for a minute or so, and then comes to a halt. From outside, I hear the whir of an electric motor. It stops, and the car moves forward a couple of metres. Then it stops, and the engine falls silent. I hear the whir of an electric motor again, this time from behind the car. I feel a tap on my shoulder. You can take the hood off now, the man commands. I pull the hood off my head. A rush of light hits my eyeballs. The car door beside me is opened. I'm helped out of the car, still blinking, to adjust my eyes. I'm in some kind of garage. It's large. There's easily enough space to fit three cars, though the Range Rover is the only car in it. A couple of doors lead from the garage, but both are closed. An expensive-looking mountain bike hangs from one of the walls. A set of workbenches line one of the others. A child's tricycle is parked in a corner. I get the distinct feeling that I'm in a family home somewhere. There's a clock on the wall showing the time. It's just past nine. We must have been driving for well over an hour. One of the doors opens and a man walks through. He's dressed in a casual shirt and tweed jacket, plus a pair of blue jeans. He's wearing, somewhat incongruously, a pair of blue fuzzy slippers on his feet. 
He's in his mid-forties, I'd estimate, judging by the receding hairline. He, too, was in the restaurant photo. Good evening, Mr Jenkins, the man says. I'm sorry for any inconveniences you've suffered coming here. Rest assured, they were absolutely necessary. My privacy is something that I have to take very, very seriously. Chapter 43 Are you Collins? I ask. I've so much that I'd... The man holds up his hand to cut me off. No questions, he says curtly. Right now, I will be the one doing the asking. Afterwards, perhaps, there'll be time for your questions. From his manner and tone, I get a strong sense of academia. Is he a university professor? Or perhaps was? Though I find it hard to imagine that a university salary would pay for such a large house if the scale of the garage is anything to go by. Tell me about your discovery, the man says. It's the cube address generation function, I say. It's been compromised, so that machine IDs are embedded into every address created. The man turns to the woman who drove me here. Ruth, bring me my laptop, please, he says. She leaves the garage through one of the doors and returns a few minutes later with a large notebook computer. She places it on a table at the side of the garage. The man goes over to the table, opens the computer up, and launches a couple of applications. He then swivels the laptop round to face me. Show me, please, he asks. I take a look at the screen of the laptop. He's opened the cube source code within the Eclipse software development tool. I run the cube address creation code from within the debugger and step through it line by line. I take care to show the contents of all the variables being used, as well as what's on the stack. This code is virtually unchanged since the source code was first made public, I tell him. Most of the rest of the cube source code has been rewritten at some time or another, but this has been left untouched since day one. The man watches the screen intently. As we get to the part where the stack pointer gets reset to be six bytes lower, and feeds partially the wrong data into the base 58 function, he whistles softly under his breath. Corruptio optimi pessima, he says, very quietly to himself. It gets worse, I tell him. I pull out my own laptop and open a file. I've written some software to decode the machine ID from each cube address, I tell him. I can then cross-reference the machine IDs against those in a US government database named Typhoon. Using this, I was able to generate this list of cube addresses and their owners. He leans in to read the contents of the file and breathes in sharply at what he sees. And there's more, I continue. I load the global ledger into one massive spreadsheet and then highlight the cube addresses embedded within it. As this defect has been in cube since day one, I can go through the entire ledger, looking for matching machine IDs, and link together all of the cube addresses that belong to the same user. So even in cases where I don't know the identity of the person, I can at least gather together all of their transactions. I click a macro button on the screen, and the spreadsheet reorders itself. 
the cube addresses grouped by particular machine ID. With all of this information, I should be able to find something that identifies the user, I say. In summary, cubes much lauded anonymity is nothing more than an illusion. The man wipes his head wearily. Thank you, Tom. I've seen enough, he says to me. I guess it's time that I introduce myself. I'm Peter Collins. I was one of the creators of Cube. He offers me his hand, and I shake it. Let's go talk somewhere more comfortable, Collins says. He opens one of the doors and leads me up a short flight of steps. I find myself on the ground floor of a large family home. He leads me along a corridor and into an open-plan living room area. Through a door, I spot a spacious, modern kitchen. Three of the four walls in the living room are floor-to-ceiling glass. A sliding glass door leads out onto a balcony. Beside the door is an expensive-looking telescope mounted on a tripod. In one corner is a large Scots pine Christmas tree, the lights on it twinkling brightly. A stack of neatly wrapped presents are piled underneath. Outside, I see nothing but blackness. I am certain that we're a long way from any other habitation. Collins gestures to me to sit down on a sofa. He heads over to a side cabinet. Can I get you a drink? He inquires. Beer? Whiskey? Brandy? Just a glass of tap water, please, I say. I really need to keep a clear head right now. Probably wise, says Collins. He disappears into the kitchen and returns a moment or two later with two glasses of water. He hands one of them to me. He then slumps down onto the other sofa. I have to say that I'm shocked by what you've just shown me, he says, shaking his head in disbelief. I never imagined that something as serious as this could have been deliberately inserted into the cube codebase, or have gone undetected for so long. Great care was taken to hide it, I tell him. So even if it was detected, it would have been thought to have just been an innocent mistake. At some point later, the code could have been reintroduced via some other manipulation of the data structures. And you're certain that it was Chuck Regan who wrote the code, he asks. Well, he claimed to me that he'd never touched that module. But there were comments in it that appeared to have been written by him. That is a strange thing for him to say, says Collins, puzzled, rubbing his jaw. He most certainly did work on that code. He did much of the programming of the client's software. He and Sam's wrote most of the software. And then there's the small fact that after I gave him a demo, he tried to kill me, I tell him. Collins visibly flinches as I say the word kill. He came at me, armed with a gun, I say. We fought for it, and it went off accidentally. Killed him instantly, shot through the heart. Collins shakes his head. What a business. I've known Chuck a long time. A very long time. I can't believe that he would betray us. Never like this. His voice trails off, and he appears to be deep in thought. It would explain some things, though, he says, after much contemplation. 
Chuck was the one who pushed hard to ensure that we published the Cube source code under the MIT open source software license. Originally, we planned to use the GNU license instead. He said that it would help ensure that the Cube software was distributed as widely as possible. I nod my head. Cube's use of the permissive MIT software license means that the code can be incorporated anywhere, even into commercial, non-open source software. If the Kronos group had gone with the GNU license, then the code could only have been used by other open source software. By championing the MIT option, Regan made sure that his malicious code could spread far and wide. Collins's voice trails off as he descends into thought once more. Then, with a shake of his head, he rouses himself. Well, I can't tell you how pleased I am that you came forward with this, he continues. Frankly, after what you've told me, I'm amazed that you're prepared to trust another of us. Someone I trust totally told me that I can trust you, I answer. But, just in case, I take in precautions. Precautions? asks Collins. I spent the flight back from Atlanta compiling a summary of my findings, I answer. Source code, instrumented program output, the code that I wrote to decode machine IDs from the cube addresses, the lot. All of this information has been placed into emails on the Dead Man's Control website, ready to send to 10 of the biggest news organisations in Europe and North America. If I don't log back into the system before tomorrow night, the emails will be sent automatically. The 10 editors who receive them will think that Christmas has come a day early. Collins smiles and nods. So if you were to suffer some form of accident tonight, he says, the emails would go to the news organisations. I nod. Collins pauses for a moment, thinking before continuing. Well, you did come forward, and for that I, and the rest of Kronos, are most grateful. You will be, of course, well compensated for the time and effort you've invested into all of this. And it should be an easy change to make in the code base. We should be able to credibly pass it off as a minor bug fix. I will. Now it's my turn to cut him off. That's it, I say, in this belief. You think that you can make the code change, pay me off, and continue as if nothing has happened? Collins shifts uncomfortably in his seat. Well, we do have to fix the code base, he says. That should be the least of your concerns right now, I say, my voice rising in volume. Seven people are dead because of this so far, not including Regan and my friend. Collins interrupts me. Shocked. Seven people? Dead? Yes, I tell him. The Russian Bratva, the ones chasing after Cube, killed six people at the new Morningstar cyber commune a couple of weeks back. I think that they were trying to capture David Sams, but he escaped. They killed everyone else in the building. Yes, I heard about the commune, says Collins. I thought that it had burnt down accidentally. That was the Bratva covering their tracks, I tell him. 
I saw the bodies of the people they killed before they returned to start the fire. And who was the seventh casualty, he asks. That's Heath Buckeridge, I answer, killed four days ago in London by the same people. At the mention of Buckeridge's name, Collins groans. Heath's dead, he says. I nod. Shot from point-blank range in the back of the head, I say. Collins puts his hand to his mouth and rises from his seat. He goes and stands by one of the glass walls, looking out into the dark. Heath and I go way back, he says, still staring out into the blackness. I didn't realise that he was mixed up in all of this. There will be more deaths if you don't act, I continue. My friend, his pregnant wife and her sister are being held captive. They will be next to die unless I give them control of Cube. I need your help to save them. Collins continues to look out into the night. He appears to be barely listening to me, lost in his own thoughts. It wasn't meant to be like this, he says. We knew that if Q was successful, we'd have to be coy about who we were. We thought that if we were open about everything else, the design, the software, what would it matter if we ourselves were hidden? We had our own families to think about, and our friends. I get up from my seat and walk over to him. The Bratva is getting closer and closer to you, I say. They almost got Sam's at the commune. Sooner or later, they'll find the rest of you. They won't show any mercy. Colin sighs. Yes, you're right, he says. We need to do more. Much more. He pauses to think for a moment. I must talk with the others, he says decisively. We all need to agree on this. He turns and heads towards one of the doors out of the lounge. Please wait here, he tells me, as he disappears through it. Now it's my turn to stand by the windows and look out at the night. I wonder just what Collins has in mind. After nearly half an hour, Collins returns. Come with me, please, he says. I follow him along a corridor and then up a flight of stairs. He leads me along another long corridor to a door at the end. He opens it and leads me through. Inside, I find myself in a massive room, two stories tall. It's a study-come-library, the largest I've ever seen. Three of the walls are taken up with elegant floor-to-ceiling custom-designed shelving, stuffed with books and papers. A couple of ladders on rollers provide access to the books in the upper reaches of the room. Outside of a public library, I don't think that I've ever seen so many books together in one place before. The centre of the room is dominated by a semicircular desk, also likely custom-made, constructed from some variety of tropical hardwood. The desk is oriented towards the fourth wall, the only one without any shelving. On this wall is mounted the largest monitor screen that I've encountered outside of a sporting arena. It's at least four metres wide and a good two and a half metres tall. It's ultra-high resolution too. 
I can't make out the individual pixels on the screen, even when I stand up close to it. On the screen are video feeds of four men. I realise that I must be looking at the four other members of Kronos. Collins pulls out a stool for me to sit on, and then sits down in the chair by the desk. Let me introduce you to the rest of the group, he says. He gestures to the rightmost screen with a video feed of a bald-headed, bespectacled man. This is Justin Horowitz. Like myself, he's a mathematician by training, he says. He points at the second screen. This is Ben Orson, our resident cryptographer, he says, of the bearded man, who is also sporting a tied-up ponytail. I can see daylight shining onto the wall behind Orson. I presume that he must be somewhere on the west coast of North America, or perhaps somewhere in Australia. Collins moves on. And this is Suresh Natar, who designed the distributed protocol, he says, pointing to the man in the third screen. Natar, clearly from somewhere on the Indian subcontinent, waves his arm in greeting. And this is James Oswald, says Collins, now gesturing at the leftmost screen. He's the real economics guru amongst us. Oswald, dressed very casually in a torn T-shirt, nods his head to acknowledge me. Gentlemen, this is Tom Jenkins, says Collins. Little over an hour ago, he demoed to me the flaw in the cube code. I've sent all of you full details so that you can see it for yourselves. I have little doubt that the flaw was deliberately inserted and that it was done to ensure that IDs were made traceable. Checking the change logs for that module, I see that the code was submitted prior to Alpha Day and that it was written by Charles. What does Chuck have to say about this? demands Oswald. Can he offer any kind of explanation? And why isn't he on this call? Charles is dead, replies Collins matter-of-factly. Tom met with him yesterday and demoed the floor. Immediately afterwards, Charles tried to kill him to protect the secret. Orson lets out an involuntary gasp. The others look shocked as well. Horowitz is first to speak. Regardless of what happened to Chuck, we need to decide what to do, he says. I move that we vote to fix the defect as quietly as possible and continue as we are, our anonymity preserved. I've looked at the code in question, and it's an easy fix to make. We should be able to submit the change under one of our standard developer pseudonyms, and no one will be the wiser. Seconded agrees Orson. I see Collins clench his jaw, but he says nothing. Peter, interjects Natar. You mentioned that some Russian criminals appear to have had some success with investigating Cube's origins. Yes, answers Collins. According to Tom, they were responsible for the burning down of the new Morningstar commune last month, killing everyone inside. They were after David, though he managed to escape, and is now in hiding somewhere outside of the US. How close is the Bratvar to knowing the rest of our identities? asks Natar. What do they know about us already? Whatever they know, the risk is manageable, says Horowitz. Even if Sam's had been captured by the Bratvar, 
He hasn't been part of our group for over a decade. He couldn't give them access to our systems. Nor does he know where any of us are currently located. And we all have excellent personal security. Let's hold the vote now and get this over and done with. But you don't know de Bratfar, I shout, leaping to my feet. Sam's is deathly afraid of them, and so should you. Collins looks at me sharply. No outbursts, please, he says. We're here to make a calm, considered decision. Any more shouting, and I will have to ask you to go back downstairs. I blush at his admonishment, suddenly feeling like a petulant child being scolded by a grown-up. I sit down again. I'm sorry, I tell him. It's just that I've met Christoph and the others who are after Cube. They are incredibly dangerous. And ruthless. I don't think that they'll ever give up. Not until they have full control of Cube. Collins turns to face the giant screen again. Before we vote, he says, does anyone have any more questions? The men all shake their heads. Very well, says Collins. I will now ask you to vote by a show of hands. As chair of this meeting, I will only vote in the event of there being a tie. Whatever we decide, we must all agree to respect the decision. With only five of us left, we cannot afford anyone to quit now. All those in favour of us fixing the defect and continuing as we are, raise your hands now. Horowitz and Orson immediately put up their hands. After a moment's hesitation, so does Oswald. And all those against? asks Collins. Natar raises his hand. Well, that's decided then, says Collins, though I think that I detect more than a little disappointment in the tone of his voice. We fix the problem in the code, and stay as we are. Suddenly, all prospect of saving Max and Phaser feels very remote. You can't just pretend that this is all going to go away, I protest, springing again to my feet. More people will die. Tom, I told you before, no more outbursts, says Collins. I'm going to have to ask you to leave the room while we conclude our discussions. My friends will die, I shout, ignoring his request. You are their only hope of rescue. That's quite enough, bellows Collins, suddenly himself angry. Go downstairs now, he pushes a button on the side of his desk. The users of Cube deserve to know what's happening, I shout back at him. That they're being tracked. I won't let you hush this up. Collins looks stressed. He runs a hand through his hair. I'm sorry, but you leave me no alternative, he says to me, before turning to face the screen. Ben, isn't DMC one of the startups you invested in? You mean Dead Man's Control, asks Orson. Why, yes it is. Collins nods. Good, he says. Tom has some rather incendiary emails regarding Cube loaded into it, due to go out tomorrow evening. Could you arrange for his account to be frozen, effective immediately? Of course, says Orson. I'll see to it right away. 
No, I shout at him. You can't do that. Yes, I can, says Orson. You should have read the Eula. There's a knock at the door and another man enters. I don't recognise him. He's tall and powerfully built. If he were entering a competition in the Highland Games, his event of choice would undoubtedly be the caber-tossing. Angus will escort you to the cottage, says Collins. You're going to be my guest while we figure out what to do. Guest, I say incredulously. Don't you mean prisoner? Collins winces at my choice of word. Guest, he repeats. It shouldn't be for long. Only a couple of days, hopefully. Think of it as a Christmas vacation. Angus takes my arm and leads me from the room. Chapter 44 Angus leads me down the stairs, through the lounge, and into the kitchen. Like the rest of the house, the kitchen is spacious, modern, and immaculately clean. He picks up a large, battery-powered lamp that is sitting on one of the counters, turns it on, and leads me outside through a side door. Outside, I'm immediately struck by how fresh the air smells. I've lived all my life in the southeast of England, and so I'm pretty much inured to the air pollution in London and its surrounds. It's only when I go somewhere where the air is much cleaner that I notice it. The second thing I notice is the night sky. It's a clear night, cold, with a thin moon nearly waned. It's very dark, and the sky is alive with stars. It's like a photographic negative of a Jackson Pollock painting. I've never seen so many stars before in my life. This way, sir, says Angus, gesturing with his lamp for me to follow. He walks ahead of me along a path and on to the main driveway. I feel the crunch of gravel underneath my feet. We walk for no more than five minutes along the driveway before arriving at a small bungalow. Angus unlocks the front door and leads me inside. I find myself in a short hallway, with a kitchen on one side and a lounge on the other. At the back of the house is a small bedroom and a toilet-stroke-shower room. You'll be sleeping here tonight, says Angus, gesturing towards the bedroom, in a tone of voice that indicates that the matter is not up for debate. I'll be in the sitting room, so if you need anything, just knock. He leaves me in the bedroom and closes the door. I hear a key turn in the lock. I survey the room. There's not much to see. There's a single bed, made up, along one wall. A wardrobe dominates another. There's a small window on the third wall. But when I examine it, I see that outside of the window are bars. I'm not going to be able to use that to escape. An escape to where? I think to myself. I don't even know where here is. I slump onto the bed. I failed. There's no other way of describing it. I haven't been able to convince Kronos to help me, and without them, I have no way of rescuing Max and co. All my hard work, all the discoveries I've made, will count for little if I cannot save them. Despite my situation, I find myself yawning. I've had barely any sleep in the past five days, and my body is crying out for rest. 
I tell myself that things may seem better in the morning, when I've rested. Perhaps I'll be able to think of a plan then that will save Max and Faser. I take off my shoes and rest my head on the pillow. Oblivion soon follows. The next thing I know is that there is daylight. I raise my head from the pillow. Daylight is streaming through the window from outside. I was so tired last night that I forgot to pull the curtains before lying down. There's a knock at the door. Come in, I say. The sound of a key turning is followed by the door opening. Collins appears. Good morning, he says, with somewhat forced cheeriness. Is it? I ask. Collins coughs nervously. Well, last night wasn't us at our finest, he admits. Give me some time and we'll figure something out. How much time do you need? I ask. Let's have some breakfast, he says, appearing to ignore my question. Come through to the kitchen when you're ready. He leaves. I get up and stretch. I wonder what the time is and how long I've been asleep for. Judging by the height of the sun in the sky, it's at least ten in the morning. I go to the bathroom for a shower and a shave. The bathroom cabinet contains hygiene supplies for both male and female guests, I note. Then I put my clothes back on and go through to the kitchen. Collins is there, hovering over the cooker, frying pan in hand. I hope a fry-up is okay for you, he asks. I quit meat a few years back, as I promised my wife. But every so often I fall back into bad habits. I come here to cook it so that she can't smell it. No, that's fine, I reply. During the shower, I decided that I would try to be civil to my incarcerator-in-chief. As with the encounter with Regan, I've a feeling that keeping calm and seemingly cooperative will help my cause more than shouting and swearing. Five minutes later, Collins is done. He hands me a large plate full of bacon, black pudding, scrambled eggs, tomatoes and other fried goodness. Having not eaten since my drive up the M6 yesterday afternoon, I'm feeling decidedly hungry. I sit down at the small table in the kitchen and Collins joins me with a plate of his own. I lived in the States, in North Carolina, for nearly a decade, says Collins. Loved it over there. The people, the sun, the lifestyle, everything. The only thing I missed about back here was the bacon. I couldn't stand the way that Americans practically cremate theirs. First thing I'd do after getting off the plane, coming back here, would be to go and have a proper fry-up. I try a forkful. The bacon does indeed taste good, as does everything else. So how did you find us? inquires Collins. What made you suspect that Mehmet Yilmaz was just a front? It was the postings to the forums that made me first suspicious, I answer. There were variations in them that felt as if they couldn't all have been written by the same person. Variations? says Collins, sounding defensive. But we went to great lengths to standardise our language. We reviewed all messages for consistency before posting. I even wrote a 20-page style guide for the group. Oh, it wasn't the wording that was suspect, I say, cutting him off. It was the spacing. 
especially around the punctuation, particularly hyphens, ellipses and full stops. Collins clicks his fingers. Of course, he says. I never thought to specify that. He shakes his head slowly. There's always some little detail that gets overlooked. That gives the game away. Well, if you will take the easy way out, I say, and stay in the shadows. This time, it's Collins turn to interrupt me. Easy, he says testily. You think that what we did was easy? I think you took the easy way out over accountability, I say, holding my ground. Choosing to hide behind the cardboard silhouette that was Mehmet Yilmaz was easy. Much easier than any of the other options you had. You have no idea, says Collins, his voice trailing off. He stares out of the kitchen window, silent. Finally, he speaks again. As a group, we long discussed how we should announce Cube, he says, and exactly who would claim to be behind it. We argued as much about that as we did over any of the design details. You wanted to avoid accountability, I ask. Well, some of us had reputations to preserve, answers Collins. We weren't at all sure that someone wouldn't discover some fatal flaw in Cube, something unfixable. We didn't want to be the laughing stock of our academic circles, the next Fleischmann and Pons. So you hid in the shadows, I say, while your little puppet, your Mehmet Yilmaz, danced in the spotlight. It wasn't an easy decision to make, he repeats. The group for a long time was more or less evenly split as to what we should do. Finally, most of us were talked around to going with the Yilmaz approach. But not everyone. Was that why Sam's left, I ask? He said that he left the group not long after Cube had been published. Yes, it was, he answers. Sam's argued louder and more passionately than anyone else for the alternative. But the others won the day. He stuck it out for a while, as a personal favour to me. But in the end, he just had to quit. He hasn't spoken to me since. He pauses again and looks out of the window. You were close, I ask. We've known each other since school, he replies. We went through university together, as well as our first jobs. He was my best friend, my oldest friend. It was he who noticed that our initials spelt Kronos. He said it at first more as a joke than anything, but the name stuck. Even after he quit, and there were no longer seven of us. I'm sorry to hear that, I say. And I'm sorry that I said that this was easy for you. Collins grunts, but says nothing in reply. He gazes out of the window, lost in his thoughts. We finish our breakfasts without saying another word. Collins looks at his watch and curses. Damn, I promised to be back at the house twenty minutes ago, he says. I better get moving. Do you mind if I go for a walk, I ask, or am I under house arrest? Collins shakes his head. No, by all means. We put on our jackets and head outside. It's a beautiful day with the sun shining in a near cloudless sky. The air is crisp, not far off freezing. Despite the sun, there's still evidence of a heavy frost last night, whitening the ground all around. 
With the daylight, I can finally appreciate the surroundings. The cottage is located close to a small loch. A pine forest stretches around all sides of the water, with just a gap on this side. Beyond the forest loom a couple of hills, their high peaks speckled with early winter snow. It's postcard picturesque, if anyone sends postcards anymore. This is quite a view, I say. Where are we exactly? Galloway Forest Park, he answers. We came here for the peace and quiet about five years ago. And the dark skies classification. I can use my telescope here without any of that dratted city light pollution getting in the way. Through a scattering of trees, I can see Collins's main residence, about 500 metres further around the lake. It's partially built into the side of the hill, with great big windows on the second floor looking out onto the waters. Beside the house is a playground, complete with a large wooden play frame and slide. A woman and small child are playing together there. They spot us and wave. Collins waves back. My family, replies Collins. I had better get moving. Aren't you worried that I'm going to try to escape? I ask, still surprised at how readily he's agreed to my request to go for a walk. Not really, replies Collins. We're surrounded by a ten-foot perimeter wall topped by razor wire. There are CCTV cameras covering every foot of that wall. You'll find that the driveway entrance gate is also ten foot high and there are two guards on duty there at all times. He starts to head off in the direction of the playground, but then turns around. Your best bet to escape would probably be to try swimming across the loch, he says, though it can't be more than a few degrees above freezing at this time of year, and the undercurrents are nasty. Then it's a 30-mile hike to the nearest house. He turns again and heads off. So that would be a no, then. I say quietly to myself. Collins seems very confident in his security. Can he really be as protected here as he claims to be? Then again, with his share of the billions of dollars in Cube that the group own, he could buy a small army if he wanted to. I decide to test out his claims and set off through the woods, away from the houses. Sure enough, I soon come to a tall wall soundly built from stone and mortar. CCTV cameras mounted on poles have been placed every ten yards or so. Along the top of the wall, razor wire has been wound, an unpleasant surprise for anyone bold enough to attempt to scale the wall. I walk along the side of the wall for a while, more to give myself some exercise than in the serious expectation of finding some gap that I could get through. Besides, where would I go if I did escape? What would I do? My only chance of saving Max and Phaser and Mina is to strike some bargain with Kronos. But how? The wall seems to go on forever, so in the end I take my leave of it and head back towards the cottage. Despite it being nearly noon, the wintry sun remains low in the sky and the shadows long. As I walk back through the trees... I ponder my next steps. Getting access to my laptop would be a good first step, as would having my mobile returned to me. Mobile phone. In an instant, I recall, 
and with it a plan. I hasten my pace back towards the houses, breaking into a run as I get closer. Collins and his family are still outside in the play area. I wave to them and he comes over. Video conference, I say, panting. I want to talk again with the rest of Kronos. Collins looks at me, askew, but he refrains from asking me what I have in mind. Instead, he simply says, I'll get the others together. Five hours later, I'm pacing the lounge in Collins's house nervously. Collins has been upstairs for the past hour, arranging the video conference and talking one-on-one with the other Kronos members. Finally, Collins leans his head around the door. We're ready, he announces. I follow him upstairs and into the study stroke library. Collins turns to the large screen on the wall. Thank you, gentlemen, for getting together again at short notice, he says to the four men on the screen. Tom asked to address us all one more time, and I think that we owe him that, after all that he has been through. He turns to me. The floor is yours, he says. I turn to face the screen and take a deep breath. It's now or never. First of all, I must apologise for my outburst yesterday, I say. The past week has been, well, let's just describe it as eventful and leave it at that. I was tired, beyond tired to be perfectly honest, but that's no excuse for how I acted towards you all. I am sorry. I truly believe that Cube will come to be seen by historians as one of the great inventions of the 21st century. It has radically changed our world, both in ways expected and ways that couldn't possibly have been predicted. A decentralised electronic currency that could be trusted and yet still protect anonymity was thought by many to be impossible. All of us who use it owe you a huge debt of gratitude for your ingenuity in creating it. The technologies of the digital age have made it possible for inventions to be developed and released without the creator or creators being identified. I can't imagine how Henry Ford could have released the Model T anonymously, or Wozniak and Jobs the Apple computer. But just because something is possible does not mean that it is the right thing to do. By hiding behind the pseudonym of Mehmet Yilmaz, you helped create the conditions that enabled Charles Regan to introduce his rogue code into the Cube codebase and ensure that it remained undetected for more than a decade. Your continued anonymity has come at a high cost, and not just to the sanctity of the codebase. I know of at least seven people whose deaths have been caused by those who wish to learn your identities and to take control of Cube. Even as we speak tonight, my best friend, his pregnant wife and her sister are all being held captive by these ruthless people. They will only be released if Cube is handed over to them. Just before Regan tried to kill me, I say, he made a phone call. I overheard him refer to the rogue code as the code we planted. Whoever he was talking to was in on the secret. I don't know who it was he was talking to, 
but you should consider the possibility that it was someone else within Kronos. When you were designing Cube, you had to find a solution to the Byzantine general's problem. Regan betrayed both you and the ideals of Cube. From this point onwards, you have to accept that you may have other traitors in your midst. Every discussion you have with each other from now on will need to keep that in mind. When it was launched, it was said that Cube was an electronic currency without need for trust in people or organisations. All you needed was trust in the algorithms and the software that implemented them. But your trust in each other gave Regan the opportunity he needed to make the malicious changes. You can no longer afford to put your trust in each other, not if there are more rogue parties amongst you. Your status quo action that you voted for last night is simply not feasible. Last week, someone I greatly respect told me that although shielding the truth from people might bring short-term benefits, they were always outweighed in the longer term by the loss of trust when the truth emerges. And it always does, sooner or later. The someone who said this to me was Heath Buckeridge. He died last Thursday on London's Tower Bridge. He was shot in the head, his brains blown out, by one of those trying to take control of Cube away from you. I pledge to do everything I can to help you fix Cube so that it can never be subverted again. But I need your help first. Save my friend and his family so that no one else dies as a consequence of your decisions. I'm all out of words. I sit down. Horowitz opens his mouth as if about to speak, but then thinks better of it and closes his mouth again. He remains silent. Thank you, Tom, says Collins. He seems genuinely pleased, not to say relieved, with my speech. Would you mind going downstairs? We're going to talk over things some more and then vote on what to do. I leave the room and return to the lounge. I sit down but find myself unable to relax. I end up pacing back and forth, wondering what else I could have said to the Kronos group to influence their decision. Then I count the lights on the Christmas tree to distract me. There are 44. I return to pacing up and down. Finally, Collins returns. We've agreed to help you, he tells me. I know how all of this can work, he says. But you need to follow my instructions exactly. Is that clear? Absolutely, I say. And you promise to work with us afterwards, for as long as necessary, asks Collins. Yes, for as long as you need, I answer. Right, says Collins, sitting down again. He leans forward and stares me straight in the eyes. This is what we're going to do. We talk for nearly an hour, going through Collins's plan. Just as we're wrapping up, we're interrupted by Ruth, my driver from the previous night. I'm sorry to disturb you, she says in a soft Scottish lilting accent, but you really should see this. The tablet that she's holding is displaying the front page of one of the major news websites. International Manhunt Launched is the top headline. 
Underneath it are two photos, one of Regan and one of me. Collins turns to me. Looks like you're a fugitive now, he says. That was episode eight of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at kronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License.